0: So imagine being let in on the greatest piece of information you've ever heard, and then you were immediately sworn to secrecy. Right? How, how would you do? Right? Seriously, how long could you go before you just had to tell someone? See, so that's the situation the disciples found themselves in after Jesus pressed them to answer the most important question we'll ever answer. Jesus asking us, who do you say that I am? This exchange is recorded for us by Matthew in chapter 16. Jesus and the disciples were in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and there were all sorts of answers to that question being thrown about. But it was Peter, who, by God's grace, he cut through all the, the confusion and he gave the right answer. He said, Jesus, you, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And if Jesus was in the business of handing out gold stars for correct answers, Peter would have have scored the whole lot. But then probably to the disciples' surprise and frustration, we're told that Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Who wants to be a messiah that no one knows about? It seems strange to us as a culture that posts anything and everything to our social media accounts. We have no secrets. But here's the reason for the secrecy. Jesus is the only one who can reveal his secret. It's his story. He's the only one who can tell us what it all means that he is the messiah see, Peter and the disciples weren't let in on the secret so that they now had authority over Jesus. They weren't let in on the news so that they could offer Jesus their opinions on what he should do next. Jesus wasn't looking for a focus group to help him figure out his next step as the Messiah. In fact, when Peter attempted to do just that, he was rebuked by Jesus in the strongest of terms. You might remember that. He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus wasn't looking for advice. He wasn't looking for their direction. As always, he was looking for humble followers who would wait for him to make known what it all meant to be the Messiah. And that's what our passage this morning begins to disclose more fully. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marks the final week of his life. And it is in that final week that we come to understand and see all that it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So our passage this morning comes from the, ma- <clears throat> the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to your daughter Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. As the grass withers and the flower fades. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem began in Caesarea Philippi. Which meant that when he reached the Mount of Olives, he and the disciples had traveled over a hundred miles on foot. And from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem is only about a mile or two. So why the need For this donkey, and on top of that, during the Passover, which is when all of this is taking place, pilgrims were expected to come into the city on foot. You see, Jesus is making a scene by coming into the city on a donkey. He wants to be noticed. We've all made plenty of scenes in our days. I may or may not have eaten my lunch on the hood of our family's car to protest my disgust that we were having peanut butter sandwiches for the 12th day in a row on our vacation to Washington, D.C. Jesus wasn't making that type of scene. This was a deliberate gesture to reveal the secret that until now had been kept quiet. Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem in such a way that no one, No one could miss the meaning of it all. He didn't come into this city as just another pilgrim. He came as the long-awaited Davidic king. You notice the crowds didn't need Jesus to explain what he was trying to convey. The crowds clearly understood the gesture. And that's because the symbolism here was embedded in Israel's history. For example, when Solomon was enthroned as king, he rode his father's mule to the ceremony. And while that story would have very likely have been in the minds of those that were present that day, Matthew doesn't quote that passage. Instead, in verses 4 to 5, he tells us that all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. That is the prophet Zechariah. The exact passage there is, is from Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10. And it's all about Israel's king coming to Jerusalem and establishing universal peace, establishing worldwide dominion. And so listen to verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, the king, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. A universal, peaceable kingdom. The secret that is being disclosed is that the Messiah, Israel's king, is not coming to take Jerusalem by force. He's not coming to make war. But to surrender his life for our peace with God. You see, the strange thing about Jesus is that when he surrenders to his enemies, when he submits to their evil designs, he gains his victory. It is through his death that he prevails. And that's not the kind of Messiah the disciples were expecting. The story they would have told would have looked very different. They were looking for peace, but the kind of peace that comes by shedding the blood of your enemies. Jesus secures peace, a better peace, an everlasting peace by shedding his blood. The disciples weren't readily on board with a Messiah that had to undergo great sufferings. And death—a Messiah characterized by above all else humility—and I wonder which story we like to tell. And what I mean is, are we content with the story that Jesus reveals about Himself? Are we comfortable having a humble King who doesn't need a warhorse to accomplish His mission? There's a tendency in all of us to do what Peter tried to do when he learned that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. To rewrite the story of our suffering, humble king who calls us to follow him by surrendering our lives to his will and to his way. To rewrite it in such a way that we are exempt from taking up our cross. To rewrite it in such a way that we miss that when it came time for Jesus to reveal that he was the Messiah, this long-awaited king. He chose a way that emphasized his humility and his meekness. See, a humble king is an approachable king. Which means that Jesus wants us to come near. He even goes so far to say he wants us to yoke ourselves to him that's the level of intimacy and closeness he desires which means he doesn't see us as burdens or hindrances he wants us near him but he knows that we're unsure and we doubt whether he would truly want people like us And the way Jesus sweeps away those doubts isn't by telling us how great we are. He sweeps away those doubts by telling us what he is like. And so listen to what Jesus said earlier in his ministry. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. You see, Jesus' choice to make a humble entry into Jerusalem is consistent with who he's been all along. By choosing to ride in on a donkey instead of a war horse was a conscious decision to display what he wanted us to know about him. It was a way to display his, his humility. Jesus wasn't trying on something new that day. And even today, right now, Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. His desire for us to draw near him hasn't changed. This is the kind of king who doesn't turn away broken or bruised people. This is the kind of king who doesn't mind being interrupted by the cries of children. So friends, what level of closeness do you think Jesus desires to have with you? And is your answer determined by what you think of yourself or by what Jesus has revealed about himself? You know, our lives end up being tied to many things. And I wonder, how many of those things are truly Gentle and humble towards you. The message Jesus sends by riding a donkey into his city tells us that he's the kind of king who's who's not afraid. He's not reluctant to be among his people. But you notice not everyone in this passage is bursting with excitement. And so the question is: what happens when this humble king is confronted with a heart of pride. And that's what we see when when Jesus enters the temple area. In verses 8 to 10, we're told that a a large crowd ushered Jesus into Jerusalem with a chorus of praise. And the words there are taken from, from verses in Psalm 118. So clearly, this got the attention of those living in Jerusalem. More than that, though, we're told that this large crowd and these shouts of praise really sent a shockwave through Jerusalem. That's the meaning of the word used there in verse 10 for, for stirred up. This was a disturbing scene. This even caused the people to be frightened. Understandably, they want to know who this man is riding into town on a donkey. And the crowd gives their answer. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So you see, it is as the Davidic king and the prophet that Jesus enters the temple area to confront those who've dishonored and subverted God's purposes for the temple. Now, the area Jesus entered was was known as the, the court of Gentiles, this was a, a, a large open space, and it was the, the only area that was not restricted to Jews only. Right? So for the Gentiles, it was the only space available for them to come to pray and, and worship the God of Israel. But what we see from the text is that it was taken over by, by money changers, those selling and, and buying animals for the temple sacrifices, And during the Passover, we know that Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims who who didn't need these services. They weren't the problem per se. The problem, what drew out Jesus' righteous anger, was that this commercial was set up in the only place Gentiles could come to worship. And it's clear that those in charge of the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, allowed this to happen without any thought of or concern for the message that it sent to the Gentiles. And the message sent was that the Gentiles were an afterthought. Their worship was less important. Their place among God's people, well, just less of a concern. And Jesus' rebuke in verse 13 is taken from, from two verses, one from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And his point is that the temple authorities, that because of the temple authorities, the temple has now strayed from its purpose. Instead of being a place where sinners from all nations could come to repent and find God's mercy, it had become a hideout for sinners. It wasn't a place of healing as God intended. Instead, it had become a mask to hide the sins of those who were in charge. And so in verse 14, when the blind and the lame who had been excluded from the temple, when they come to Jesus to be healed, we're seeing the true purposes of the temple being restored. The temple was to be a home for outcasts. It was to be a place where those in need of mercy could be refreshed and restored by God. It was where sinners could see that their sins could be forgiven through a sacrificial system ordained by God. So you see how Matthew gives us this beautiful picture of how Jesus is the true fulfillment of the temple. Everything it was meant to be Is perfected and completed in him? Where's the true home for the outcast? In Jesus. Where are we restored and refreshed by God's mercy? In Jesus. Where do we see that our sins can be forgiven? In Jesus' body on the cross. But for those running the temple worship worship became the means to hide from God You see how re- religion became their cover For then the institution of the temple was used to promote was used to promote their status their glory among the people it was their means to look impressive to elevate themselves above others. Friends, we need to understand that worship can be used to conceal the pride and self-righteousness of our hearts. We can make our way to church every Sunday for the purpose of disguising from ourselves and others what's really going on in our hearts. We can use the, the beauty of our worship to mask the ugliness that we don't want to deal with. The chief priests and scribes would have looked. They would have looked like the most spiritually devoted people. But Jesus' evaluation of them was that they were completely dead towards God. They had the appearance of life, but on the inside there was there was no fruit. Friends, there's a warning here that we all need to take seriously. Because the truth is, we can appear to be spiritually alive, we can say the right things, and yet never have a true and vital faith in Christ. We can have all the trappings of religion and yet have cold and distant hearts toward God. We can be so filled with knowledge and yet be completely empty of love for Christ. We can miss the obvious truth that what we need aren't rituals and traditions, but a Savior, a Redeemer who would die for our healing, for our purification. Friends, know that Jesus isn't fooled by appearances. The temple authorities were blind. They were sadly blind to their spiritual brokenness. This is why they approached Jesus and reprimand him by asking, "Do you not hear what these are saying?" And do you see the sad irony? Unlearned children recognize who Jesus is while the learned chief priests and scribes do not. Their question was intended to shame Jesus, to put the pressure on him to apologize and to reject what the large crowds were saying about him. But look at what Jesus did. He turned around after saying, yes, I know what these are saying. He said, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself. See, that's a verse from Psalm 8 that speaks about how God is vindicated against his enemies through the praise offered by children. See, Jesus didn't back down. Instead, he turned up the heat of the controversy by applying a psalm about the worship and praise of God to himself. He was saying to those men, you know Psalm 8. Of course you do. Well, what it says about the praise of God is applicable to me. Because I am God. And I have come into my house. And I see how you have desecrated it. You see, in the face of their scorn and rejection... Jesus was vindicated by children, small children shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And the role children play here is significant. And and it reveals, I think, the major stumbling block of Jesus' detractors. And here's what I mean. When Jesus and his disciples were making their way into Jerusalem an argument broke out among the disciples about who was, who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus responded by calling a child over, over to them and saying, truly I say to you, unless you become like children, you are, never, you are never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, Jesus said, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Look, I know not all of the traits of children are admirable, but what is admirable, what Jesus is calling us to emulate is the fact that children know they are needy and they are unconcerned with where they rank among their peers. Have you ever seen a little child who's allowed to dress herself? That they look ridiculous. But they don't care. And the problem with the temple, the temple authorities is that they've reached this place where they don't think that they are spiritually in need. And they are consumed with their social status. Why do you think the blind and the lame came flocking to Jesus in the temple? They were social outcasts in desperate need. They didn't care if they looked foolish. They knew they were in need. And they knew there was an opportunity. And so they bolted to Jesus. What a lesson that is. In the morning after this event, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. And he was once again met by the chief priests and elders. And he told them this parable about two sons. He said, you know, the first son, when asked by his father to go work in the vineyard, answered he would not. But he later changed his mind. The second son, when asked by his father to go work in the vineyard, answered he would. But he never did. And Jesus asked these educated men, which of the two did the will of his father And because they were so bright, they got the right answer. Of course, the first son. But then they stepped in it. And Jesus delivered his punchline. He said, you know, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Because when John came to you in the way of righteousness, when John came pointing to me, you did not believe him. But these tax collectors and prostitutes who you despise, they did. You see, the will of the Father is that we would repent. It's that we would repent and put our trust in his Son. What matters is that we change. What matters is that we would humble ourselves. That's what matters. The temple authorities, they had the upper hand on everyone when it came to appearing righteous. So you see, they had the appearance of the second son, who would who said he would go, but never did. Which means there's no real obedience in their lives because they refuse to listen to God's son friends are you humble like a child do you think you can take care of your needs on your own strength your own wisdom do you think your so, your social status where you rank among your peers is some sort of protection in this life You can have all your earthly needs taken care of. You can have all the social capital in the world. But Jesus tells us that if we reject him, we will be crushed. We'll be crushed under the weight of our own sins. Unless we repent and believe like those tax collectors and prostitutes. Unless we come like the blind and the lame to Jesus for our healing. And remember, Jesus didn't come into Jerusalem simply to tangle with these men. Right? He wasn't interested in simply winning debates. He came for something so much greater. He came to present himself as the sacrifice. As the only sacrifice that could eternally remove God's judgment against our sins. He came all this way to die for unrighteous people, unrighteous Pharisees, unrighteous prostitutes, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be covered by his perfect righteousness. We see that Jesus was willing to come into his own city and be rejected, to be cast out so that we could be received. And so as we head into this Holy Week, I wonder, are you entering it as a humble child? Are you going to come to Good Friday deeply aware of your brokenness and your flaws, your lack of righteousness. We should take time this week to search our hearts, to ask those kinds of questions, because friends, none of it, none of it will make any sense if we head into this week with hearts of pride. So let us pray. Lord God, we do confess our need to change and be transformed. Yet, Lord, we know that often we feel stuck in our sins. We look at the things that we've done and know that we cannot change them. But Lord, what good news it is to know that your grace and mercy is far greater and being united to your son by faith. We know that he is the power for our change and for our transformation. It is in his name that we pray, amen.